I'm Alex Perrine. I'm a staff writer at The New Republic. And I'm Laura Marsh, the magazine's literary editor. And this is The Politics of Everything, a show about the intersection of culture, media, and politics. Today, we're talking baseball. Are we ready for the season to begin? Obviously, we're not, but it might be happening anyway. So we're going to figure out why that is. Later in the episode, we're talking about something that is closing, the New York City subway system, which has started shutting down between 1 and 5 a.m. We're going to be talking about the impact of the coronavirus on the future of public transportation. This is the politics of everything. South Korean baseball, everyone's new favorite sport, got started at the beginning of May. A lot of people I know have been enjoying watching it. In Germany, too, sports are starting back up, largely because the country itself is beginning to open back up as it recovers from the coronavirus. Here in the U.S., we've been watching elaborate preparations made for our own professional sports to return. But instead of making the return contingent on our recovery from the pandemic, the industry seems to be trying its hardest to come back no matter what situation we're in. So today, we're joined by David Roth, a writer and occasional contributor to The New Republic, former editor of Deadspin, to talk about what the seeming urgency is in having American sports come back. David, how are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? Uh, I'm all right. You know, with the South Korean baseball, like, I've been thinking of it as sports returning being South Korea's reward for having a functional government and a a sort of generally functioning society. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And... So it seemed like our denial of sports to ourselves was like, well, you got to get your shit together first. But it does seem like what we're seeing now is like, what if we don't get our shit together? <laughs> can't, we just, can't we have sports anyway? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's like the move across the culture with all of this stuff where it's like, you know, everybody did the right thing for two months. It sucked. Everybody hated it. <laughs> like our hairs are going all crazy and everybody's miserable and housebound. And so when we get to the end of it, everybody, instead of like thinking about what we might do to fix it. Everyone's just sort of like, well, that was, we did it. Like we stayed in, we got our, we got our flyovers and that was nice. Yeah. And now it's time to go get sick at Hobby Lobby. <laughs> and that's just like fucking grim. Right. <laughs> so watching these kind of like niche sports, sports going on in foreign countries, like recorded games from years ago is, is sort of the sports equivalent of like ordering groceries online. Yeah. But it can't continue. Like it's, it's not, it's not as good as the real yeah. thing. Yeah, I think that the, the the real hardcore metaphor, which is in poorer taste, is it's basically a methadone versus heroin sort of scenario. <laughs> yeah. Like watching Korean baseball, staying up until 1.30 in the morning to watch a guy that the Mets cut last year pop out, which I've done. <laughs> and I don't feel proud of it, but I did do it. That was something that I felt I needed to do right. so that I could feel normal. Mm-hmm. And it worked for a little bit, but I don't want to keep doing that. Like what I want is to watch actual Mets pop out. <laughs> Wait, it's interesting you mentioned that the flyover too, because that's like this rare instance of a public spectacle that people can like all feel like they watched happening at the same time. And like, to be honest, I didn't find that enjoyable. Oh, me either. Don't really like planes flying overhead at a moment when I can't leave my house. But it seems like you know, there's like two ways to see the reopening of sports. One is what Alex talked about, which is like, hey, we're functioning again. That means we can do sports. And the other one is like, things are not functioning and we need a circus. Like we need sports so that people just have like something that they can cling on to, like something they can enjoy during this terrible time. Yeah, I mean, I think both can be true. Being trapped inside 
having nothing but screens to distract you. You know, screens and, and I guess family members, if you want to <laughs> expand it. But that, like, in, it's so clearly insufficient, especially given that like network television shows are like running out of episodes of things. Mm. And so the idea of like this demand for fresh content as people that work on the internet, uh, you know how that works. <laughs> and it's like the, the demand will be met one way or the other. I think the, the challenge for baseball is just that people really do care about it. Like I really do care about baseball and I don't want to see them get this wrong. I don't want to see them make people sick. I don't, I mean, like I don't want an 80 game season, but I also don't want like 15 games and then everybody going back into quarantine and some older clubhouse guy being intubated. Like that's just, it's not worth it to me. Baseball, because there's, you know, relatively little contact, it seems like a game that should be playable. NFL is continuing to go on as if their season's going to start like normal, by the way. But it's not supposed to start till the fall, so like you can keep that illusion going for a while. Yeah. I mean, I think all of this is like this big exercise in like the bargaining stage of grief. <laughs> and like it's just sort of this performance of it across the spectrum of fans in all these different ways. Like, like right now we're like rationalizing as baseball fans the idea of being like 82 games, a longer postseason, like – like with NFL, I mean, it's very NFL that this is the case. That they're just like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah. These guys are warriors. Like, we're on. See you in September. <laughs> and I mean, it's seductive too because I did. I find I find myself being like, like you know, Vikings had a good draft this year, and like, look at what what the hell's Green Bay doing? And I just like, immediately you just fall into these habits, or you're just like, yeah, like oh, I've done like, that. <laughs> man, like I tried to drop a guy from my fantasy baseball roster like last week. I have nothing to base that on. I just realized that there was like, it, I needed to do it. Right. And like, the league wouldn't let me do it either. They're like, no, there's really not. Really good. Yeah, it's just like we haven't turned on transactions because of the, you know. I'm glad there's still some responsible leadership left in America. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, it's, my, it's the commissioner of my CBS Sports League. <laughs> do you think we're going to get baseball this summer? Do you think it's going to happen? So I'm in the same space with that that I am with like, Biden being the president <laughs> or any number of other things. So like the short answer to your question is like, yeah, probably. And the broader mm -hmm. answer to it is I find it impossible to imagine. Right. So <laughs> that's a great it's comparison like, actually. <laughs> yeah. Like it, you know, everything is pointing in that direction. And yet like, I just don't see how it works. Much like a Joe Biden victory. It could be something that will happen and that we all immediately regret. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely that chance. <laughs> So the, the goal that they're talking about now to me seems insanely ambitious, which mm -hmm. is like start spring training by early June, start the season, of course, on July 4th. Cause God, what a, what a yeah. stupid touch. <laughs> Maybe you make the whole field out of an American flag to see if that works. But like it's starting with all these like sort of stilted baseball-y ideas where they're like, you know, like reawakening. And like and then on July 4th, we celebrate as a nation. It's all like, mm. it's clear that they started with the messaging. And then like somewhere along the line, they're going to be like, this thing seems really communicable. Has anyone noticed this? Um, one question I actually have for David is, like my impression of the life of a professional athlete is that you're practicing all the time. And how do you do that if you play team sports but you're socially distancing. Like, how does a baseball player maintain a level of world-class excellence? Well, this is a, a good question because, you know, if, the, if this was happening 20 years ago, the answer would be, like, uh, there is no change required. <laughs> it Basically, like, in my lifetime, baseball players started working out. <laughs> but, like, before that, it was this elaborate sort of, like, you know, these guys would be, you know, some of them were real big hoss country dudes, and, some, and they all had great hand-eye coordination, 
But like, I remember as a child watching my favorite baseball player smoke a cigarette in the dugout of a game. <laughs> <laughs> like, and that's not, it wasn't like rare. I was like, wow, Keith Hernandez seems real stressed out right now. I, that's probably what this means. <laughs> Will the sports just be being played at a lower level when they come back? Like, will we be back to, like, a 1970s level of... of I think that could be interesting, right? I think that would be fantastic, man. Like, man, like now you have to smoke cigarettes? Right, yeah. Like, it's actually yeah. good for you. The, the germs don't like it. And then, like... I think it is a little bit different for baseball than it would be for, like, basketball or something. But at the very highest levels, like, you just can't go that long as an athlete without doing the conditioning and the training stuff that you're used to doing. Mm. So the craziest type of person that exists in the United States is uh, college football strength coaches. <laughs> Guys that like get up at like 325 in the morning and then just do push-ups for two hours and like it's all on Instagram somehow. <laughs> like so those dudes were sending workouts to their players to do at home with like whatever was around, you know, like a big can of tomatoes, just like curl that <laughs> a thousand times and because that was like all that they could do. But, like, not doing it is not an option. That's why they have to do spring training again. Mm. But I'd worry about, about players getting hurt. I mean, there's definitely other concerns on the player side that are very valid there. Mm. Like, bodies aren't really meant to throw baseballs as hard as pitchers throw them, which is why these guys wreck their shoulders and their elbows. I mean, it's almost, like, considered a part of the process of player development at this point, that, like, if you are a hard-throwing pitcher, at some point you're going to miss a season because you blow out a ligament in your elbow and then they take that same ligament from a cadaver and they put it in your elbow and then you rehab it, <laughs> which is perverse, right. but it's like normal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I find as someone who doesn't read a ton about that stuff, that is incredibly shocking. There were stories about this right when they shut spring training down. A bunch of guys who like maybe would have needed Tommy John surgery, which is what they call that surgery. Uh, just like opted into it because they were like, well, I'm not doing anything. Like if we're not playing the season, like give me that sweet cadaver season, ligament. Let's get it. Anyway. The yeah. only people having elective surgeries right now, professional athletes. Yeah, a friend of mine wrote a story about it for the day. He's like, is this ethical? No. You know, when you have many millions of dollars, like you can just go to like the doctor's office and they'll do it there mm -hmm. or whatever. But it's still like definitely a weird thing. The idea of opting in to that treatment under any circumstances, but especially these is pretty wild. I am now delighted imagining no conditioning happening and baseball returning with like 70s style hitting and 1910s oh, yeah. style pitching. Everybody's showing up just like kind of with a fucked up haircut and like an extra chin being like, all right, let's try this thing. Let's see what we can do. I think that's great. You know, talking baseball too, like this has also become a labor story and it's become an economic story too because they're negotiating around how the season will be structured. But they're also sort of having a debate about how the players will be compensated and protected, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's happening actually even as we speak. Uh, the MLB like Board of Governors and the Players Association are in a meeting. And there will be many more meetings over the next probably two weeks, which is the window in which to get this done if it gets done. But it is absolutely a labor story in the way that like basically everything to do with baseball in the last couple of years has been it's hard to credit any of this to this particular Trumpy moment because baseball owners have been pushing for the same shit for 50 years. Like since they grudgingly had to give up free agency in the 70s, that basically they've been pushing for a salary cap. They've been pushing for like the new salary reduction measures. And right. so what the owners have tried to do in this case is like sort of stealthily introduce a salary cap in the understanding that it's just for this one year, it's because of extraordinary circumstances and lost revenue, and all that's true. 
if you can't have fans in the seats, which you can't, mm-hmm. then like they're going to lose a bunch of money. And if games aren't airing on TV, then you're losing money on that too. But where the union is coming from with this is that they see this as a new excuse for the same old shit. And that is right. not entirely wrong, but it's the sort of thing where if that's what they're going to be haggling over for the next two weeks in terms of like figuring out a revenue split that everybody can deal with or whatever, then that leaves the really hard part of this, which is the how do you do it without making people sick to be kind of like a game time decision. And that's just not <laughs> how it works. You know? Right, right. But it does feel like it mirrors the entire ridiculous national debate over, quote, reopening the economy in general, yeah. because it is like, it's specifically people talking about putting other people at risk for their own economic benefit and sometimes for their own convenience and entertainment. And it's like the the people in the field will be the ones assuming the risk in this case. Yeah. So the way that the owners have tried to do this in the past is by saying these players are so greedy, they want their $10 million, $20 million salaries, and they're willing to destroy this season and this sport in order to get it. And in this case, like there's a couple of different ways that the players can go with it. Uh, Sean Doolittle is the closer for the Nationals and probably the most enlightened professional athlete ever to live, (laughs) did a thread on Twitter that was basically explaining like how hard this actually is, even if there were, you know, the testing capacity that we know does not exist. Mm. That like to do it in a way that doesn't make people sick is going to be extremely hard. And it would have to involve jumping players ahead of the line of other people, you know, who maybe need those tests more. Mm. And there isn't necessarily that like excess capacity to, to do any of it. That's an argument that I think people would be sympathetic to, to a point. But what the owners can do after that is the same shit they've always done, which is that like these guys know how much you want baseball, but they won't play because they're scared of getting sick. And that's insanely cynical. And yet, like if you know what baseball owners are like, it's a wonder they haven't gotten to that point yet. Right. One element of that, that I think is pretty interesting is if these are the struggles that we see like famous baseball players engaging in and like having to fight like over the tiniest things for, how bad is it going to be for just like ordinary people? I think that's totally right. I mean, this is consider that baseball players have like the strongest union, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a union made up entirely of very wealthy people. Mm-hmm. Right, like, like the actors' uni- union, these kinds of unions, they're unions of like superstars who have like yeah. immense bargaining power as individuals, and then they're in a union too. Yeah, they are out there advocating for themselves with the the ultimate card on the table. Like you could just not do the season, and then nobody gets any money. Mm-hmm. And owners obviously don't want that, but it's not really that different than like Kroger deciding that hero pay ends in two weeks because the pandemic has been conquered by then or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Baseball has the strongest union within American professional sports, too, right? Yeah. The NFL Players Union is not going to have as strong a position as the baseball union. Certainly not. And they're like the NFL Players Union like lives to capitulate. (laughs) That it's just kind of like because of the way the NFL is where they basically kind of sell themselves as like an unofficial extra branch of the armed services. (laughs) (laughs) The idea of like them being gladiators is like a compliment to them as opposed to being an indictment (laughs) of the society that made them. An an accidentally insightful comparison. (laughs) 
Darren Ravel, who's like all he does is like write about like if someone eats Skittles on TV, he's like that was worth eleven point two million dollars for the Skittles Corporation. <laughs> That's like what his job is. And he was saying yesterday that like these guys like they'll sign a waiver. They understand what's at stake. Like they they and their families have come to peace Jeez, with the fact that these players are going to have worse, shorter lives because of things like CTE. And like a bunch of players and the relatives of former players were like, why would you say that? Yeah, that's the hero rhetoric around, you know, all of the people we are forcing to go back to work. Yeah. And then saying like, and like, congratulations on being a hero too. (laughs) Yeah, which is like not remotely what anybody signed on for, you know, like that's the part that is enraging to me beyond, I mean, like I'll be sad if I don't get my sports to watch, but like I'll live the idea of just realizing that these people's lives are as real as yours and that the risks to them are as real as the risks to you, that seems like not a very difficult thing to get your head around until you look at the rest of the country. <laughs> and at this point, like there really is like some concern on my part that like because people are, are sick of making sacrifices to no end, that they're just going to start demanding that other people go back to normal so that their lives will feel more normal. Yeah. They're not going to be able to have games with fans at them. Like, even in Korea, where they really do have it pretty well managed, I think that they said by the end of the year, they'd want the stadiums at 20% capacity. Yeah. But, like, no one would go to a baseball game now. No, or, I like, know. some people would, but, like, the reason that the state exists is to make <laughs> to sure stop, that they don't. to stop them from doing it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, like, I would have appreciated at points if somebody had just, like, seized me on the way out of the apartment when I was going to watch, see if the Mets are going to finish the game 13 games under 500 or 14 games, and someone was just like, no, it's not, it's closed, sir. Yeah. But I think, like, the next couple of weeks are going to be kind of pivotal, like, the union could make one of two arguments. And if they get in the weeds on revenue stuff and salary cap and things like that, and it becomes a money thing, then I think that they will not have the sympathy of the public for very long. But if they're like, you know, we care about money, but we care about the game, we're willing to give to get here and there, but also like you can't ask us to go out there without a real system to keep us safe and to keep other people safe. I think that, that that's like a, a reasonable thing for any worker to ask yeah. for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are more people than just the players involved in, in carrying out a sporting event. And I'm just reminded now of the, the the entire trend of stories from the very beginning of quarantine that were like, the star 22-year-old player on this team is covering salaries for everyone who works at the arena and like not the owner. <laughs> yeah. There's been so much of that. It just feels like a taunt at some point. Like yeah. I remember seeing a team share a GoFundMe for an employee who was sick. Gosh. <laughs> and I was like, it's cool that you would signal boost this Dallas Mavericks or whoever the hell it was. But like your owner's a billionaire. Like you don't need to be like, please RT. Like that's, you have to do better than that. <laughs> right, right. I mean, so much of the the stuff that the owners have proposed here, the depth of cheapness that they have evinced is like beyond not being Mm. able to pay like hot dog guys they cut the draft they this is like one of their proposals is to take the mlb amateur draft which is like 40 rounds it's like how they restock their minor league systems and you know like a lot of guys that get picked in the 40th round don't wind up in the majors but like mike piazza was picked in like the 50th round like these things do happen Mm. now they want to cut that to five rounds they want to cap 
the amount that can be given as a signing bonus to players that are not picked in the first five rounds. It's going to have these disruptions all up through college baseball, through amateur sports, and in terms of player development. It's a super short-sighted decision that's going to save owners about $1 million per team in oh, signing bonuses. God, really? Cumulative. Cumulative. <laughs> oh, my God. And yet, like, there are, like... Plenty of owners that, like, just on principle will not spend a million dollars on a baseball team if they don't absolutely have to. I mean, theoretically, you have a baseball team. You should want there to continue to be good baseball, shouldn't you? (laughs) Yes. I mean, this is, like, this is the part of it that's so frustrating to me as a fan of it. There is, in the NFL, and I think especially in MLB, this tendency to sort of take these, like, short-term concerns, the next collective bargaining agreement, the next round of paychecks that go out, and elevate that over the broader success of the league or the future of the league, which is beyond being like short-sighted boss shit that everybody is familiar with, is also like these leagues, whether you care about them or not, like are public institutions. Like it matters to a lot of people, to millions of Americans, that baseball continue to be baseball and continue to exist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at this point, like obviously all the risks are much higher. Like the idea of down the line is like, very much an uh, unknown proposition in a bunch of different ways. Yeah. So being short-sighted about it now seems like it could wind up having many more negative repercussions down the line than even the usual short-sightedness. What are the goofiest sort of reopening ideas from like the NBA and baseball that we've seen? Because I, I, I was really enjoying, let's have the NBA finish the season entirely in Disney World. I was enjoying that one. So good. All that <laughs> shit is, any of the ones that involve sequestering everybody that was an early baseball proposition was like well like the answer is clear everybody in baseball moves to arizona and the games are played all day (laughs) in a dome and no one is allowed to watch we have a whole season everybody playing at disney world everybody playing in arizona and getting tested all the time and not seeing their families for months so that they can live in like a dormitory before going out to practice with a mask on like at some point, you're dealing with something that's not actually better than the absence of a baseball season. It also seems like if an infection did get into that bubble, you basically would wipe out or like completely demobilize the entire personnel. Of <laughs> Excellent baseball. point. That's one reason why <laughs> this is incredible, too, is the idea that like if any of the people involved in planning this had seen any horror movie, it doesn't even need to be a good one. Just know that a confined space is very bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's like really not great. Mm-hmm. Has anyone suggested sending all the American teams to the, the good countries? Uh, that would be a, a wonderful idea. I kind of like that one. Yeah. As it is, it's like the only American baseball players that you can watch playing baseball right now are these like sort of lower rung tweener guys that went to the Korean league because they like didn't Mm. know that they were going to have an MLB job. Mm. So now like Aaron Altair and Tyler Saladino (laughs) are like the absolute top of the pops for American (laughs) baseball fans. Right. The most famous American baseball players currently working right now. Yeah. (laughs) And like I've had dear friends, my own wife, roast me for knowing the names of these extremely insignificant guys and being like, oh, that's cool. Odrissimer Despain. I'm glad he's doing well. (laughs) He had kind of like flamed out early. But like, he's fucking laughing now, man. did you go back and like do research on his record like so that you feel like you've been following him for a long time and you're invested in him? It doesn't feel good to admit, but yes, I have done a little bit of that. (laughs) I do think the Players Union should keep in its back pocket like we will just move to a functioning country. 
Like they should, yeah. <laughs> they should mm-hmm. actually just consider. <laughs> the ultimate threat is like, we're just going to do it all in Germany and everybody's going to be fine with it. Yeah. It's plenty of sausage and beer there. <laughs> exactly. After a short break, I will be bringing on a very special guest. I will be interviewing my co-host, Alex Perrine, about how the coronavirus is affecting public transit and whether the New York subway system can survive the pandemic. talking about a consequence of the pandemic that's less visible to most people who are sheltering in their homes, which is the effects of the pandemic on the subway system in New York. Ridership is down by over 90%. It's estimated that they'll need at least $10 billion by the end of the year to get out of the hole they're in now. And at the end of April, it was announced that the subway will be closing at night. And this is an open-ended closure. So Alex and I are talking today about what this close down means for the future of infrastructure in New York and what a return to normal might look like with a subway system that's hobbled by debt and all the other problems that are coming up during the pandemic. The New York subway is pretty unique among major transit systems for operating for 24 hours. And one of the few things about New York that makes it feel much more egalitarian than than other places is that for the same amount of money at any time of the day, you can get from pretty far out to the center of Manhattan. And it basically allows people who have, you know, difficult jobs to live in the city. Um, Mm -hmm. It allows them to commute affordably and uh, it allows them to get home after working a night shift. What I found troubling was announced that they needed to close it down at night to clean it, to uh, sterilize everything. But of course, what they actually used the time for was to clear out all of the homeless people who had been using the subway as shelter. But even beyond that bit of sanitizing of the announcement, the fact that it was open-ended is troubling. Um, Because uh, as you were describing the financial woes the system is in, it's very hard to imagine in the near future or even in the long-term future, a point at which the MTA is going to look at its budget and say, you know what, it makes budgetary sense to return to 24-hour service. So let's talk about the short-term effects, I guess, to begin with. The most kind of devastating one does seem to be the effect on homeless people who were relying on just getting some shelter. And this move doesn't seem like it's completely out of the blue for the MTA to decide to do this. Oh, no, no. And I mean, if you look at the sort of political back and forth here... The city does not have a plan for what to do with these people who have been sheltering in the in the trains, and the MTA does not believe it's their job to come up with a plan for what to do about these people sheltering in the trains. And so, uh, in the end, all that happens is they just get booted off, mostly, to the streets. But the second thing here is that it allows them to reduce service in a way that would save a lot of money and could really change the way the subway works in the whole city, like the way it sort of underpins the life of New York. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the MTA's biggest costs are labor, and obviously running fewer trains means having to pay fewer people to run the trains. Obviously, the, the subway basically has no riders right now, effectively none. But, the, you know, theoretically, we all believe someday life will return to some semblance of normality. And what is the system going to look like that? I read in the Wall Street Journal just a few days ago, and I think they were the only ones to report on this, in the MTA's 
desperate bid for funding just to stay afloat, they went to the municipal bond market. They tried to sell bonds in March, and then they delayed it. And then now they're selling bonds that will pay a yield of 5.2%. Whereas if they had sold them a few months ago before the pandemic, there would have been probably about a 2% yield on these. And that's money the MTA is going to have to pay back in the future. Like mm-hmm. they're, Part of the MTA's budget crisis comes from being so debt financed, they're constantly paying debt and interest on that debt. Uh, and that's only going to balloon further from here, obviously. If I believed we had a federal and state government that believed in rescuing the MTA, I would be a lot less worried. Right. So I want to talk about the longer history of this, because this move specifically is presented as a response to the fallen ridership that's highly specific to the pandemic. But the reason that the subway system needs to take such drastic measures is because it's just been in dire straits for so long. Yeah. You know, it was neglected and in decline for decades and then had a wonderful period where um, it actually started improving, service started improving. New York's population was growing and the subway ridership was growing. But beginning basically with the Pataki government in the 90s and continuing through Democratic successors in Albany, the state government just didn't want to invest in modernizing the signals and all these sort of little things that accumulated over time that eventually led uh, a few years ago to people being like, why is like one slowdown leading to a cascading failure throughout the entire system? Just mm-hmm. you know, like so many other things in our country, it was, oh, it turns out there's been years of disinvestment. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the the solution for a very long time was, as I said, to just have the system take on more debt. Well, it's interesting that the problem here for a while, at least in the last 10 years, was increasing ridership. More and more people theoretically generating more revenue, but none of that being used to invest in improving the service, expanding, increasing capacity. Yeah, the the inability to expand has been wild, too. I mean, it took decades and decades to get a couple stations on the Second Avenue subway opened. So that was that was actually the problem was the system was basically running at capacity. And then it turned out it couldn't take as many people as needed to use it every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also ways to improve capacity without actually building more track, right? The, the main way to do it is to modernize the signal so you can run trains more frequently. And there were a lot of things in the way the MTA was running trains that were slowing things down. If you've lived in New York for a long time, you've probably noticed certain commutes that you take regularly over the course of 10 years or so, slowing down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, I know, you know, some sort of tra- some transit obsessive who time the same leg of their journey <laughs> every day. You know, you might think oh, it must be mechanical. It must be the degrading tracks. And it's, no, it's mostly, a, it's an internal policy. And then, of course, when they brought in Andy Byford to run the New York City subway system, that was one of the first things he tackled with a Save Safe Seconds, what was the name of his program? Uh, which was basically to take these spots where the slowdowns were not actually doing anything to help safety and say, let us stop doing that. Right. So he resigned in January of this year. Yes. Um, He was kind of brought in to work the magic on the New York City subway system that he had worked in London. What's interesting is one of the reasons that he left was that Governor Cuomo sort of redefined his job and took a bunch of responsibility away from him. The political backstory here is that for years... Cuomo didn't want to take responsibility for the state running the MTA for a lot of reasons. The main one being it's difficult to make the MTA work. And so if he's not seen as being responsible for it, then that helps helps him politically. He can blame someone else. Uh, but once it became 
much more of an issue in his uh, re-election race against Cynthia Nixon. He sort of went into man of action mode and said, I'm in charge of the trains now. But that led to clashes with Byford because Cuomo's sort of way of doing things is to just pack the institution with people who are loyal to him. <laughs> um, and Byford's priorities were basically reliability. What do we need to do to make the system work better? What Cuomo likes doing is painting things blue and <laughs> installing Wi-Fi on buses. Largely, he likes symbolic gestures more than he likes actually making things work effectively. I mean, this uh, feels so, like why we've been living through this very strange era of like touch screens in the Union Square subway station that yeah. will tell you how delayed the trains are. Right. It sounds like a good idea to a boomer who never rides the train. Mm. <laughs> like who has just no, no daily familiarity with what transit users need. But so that's the political leadership under which... We are hoping for the subway system to emerge from this crisis. And something I've been thinking about during this whole thing, this is actually a time that could be used as an opportunity to change our streets, and not just in New York, but across the country. Right. So there's kind of a fork in the road at the moment in that this pandemic is showing us what a city with fewer cars driving around looks like. Some of the streets have been pedestrianized. People are, I think, using their cars less because there are fewer trips to take. But then at the same time, this shutdown of the MTA at night also gives you this horrible vision of what a future in which we just completely disinvest from that kind of infrastructure looks like. Mm -hmm. But like this is an opportunity to say in the near term future, fewer people might be needing to get to their work every day. People might have more flexible hours. Doesn't mean pile everyone back into trains if they don't feel safe immediately getting onto trains. It could mean uh, build pedestrian bridges. It could mean subsidies for uh, e-bicycles. But it would require taking the way we currently use our streets in New York and, and fundamentally rethinking it. To go back to the subway system, there has been a sort of like ironically bright spot of news, which was that the L train repairs have been <laughs> completed ahead of schedule. The L train, which is one of the trains with the largest ridership in the city, has a tunnel that goes beneath the East River that was heavily, heavily, heavily corroded uh, by Hurricane Sandy. And the original plan was to shut down the L train basically for more than a year to completely fix the tunnels. They changed that to a partial shutdown, and they managed to finish it. And again, you know, talking about lost opportunities here, if instead of going to investors begging for them to purchase debt from the MTA, um, it could be using this time when ridership is low to take on all these repairs that get put off because it's extremely difficult to repair a system that runs for 24 hours. Instead of simply removing homeless people at the end of the day every day, they could be replacing the signals. Like, we're going to get to the other end of this and we're going to ask, like, why did we do nothing with this time? Mm -hmm. So one question I have about this uh, partial closure is, is there a way of looking at this that does make sense? Will people feel less comfortable riding the subway going forward? And it, does that sort of justify it? I mean, it's absolutely the case that people are going to be more nervous about riding the subway going forward, um, you know, possibly until there's a vaccine. There's no getting around that. And uh, ridership has plummeted in cities across the entire world. But what could help, obviously, is <clears throat> having a functional government and a functioning society. <laughs> because as I just I just read in the uh, Washington Post, the metro ridership across Europe and, and in New York 
is practically nil. And in Seoul, South Korea, it's actually beginning to creep back up. Uh, and part of the reason for that is because they have largely contained their own coronavirus epidemic. So I like to hope that if we get a handle on the outbreak, people will be confident in returning to the trains if they can adopt this sort of normal, sane safety procedure you would adopt uh, at work or at the supermarket. Mm -hmm. You know, one way to help enforce things like social distancing is not to cut service so that there are fewer trains for the same number of people, but to increase it so that there's more room for the people on the trains. We'll see if we can get our MTA to, uh, to figure out that uh, complicated arithmetic. Yeah, that's going to be a big ask for them. <laughs> this is the politics of everything. Please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And please do take advantage of the New Republic's Stuck at Home special offer. Get unlimited access to newrepublic.com for three months for just $5. It's available for a limited time at tnr.com slash special offer. Thanks for listening.